Welcome to episode 68 of TechSync, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On this episode, we have a very special guest with us, Gabriel Weinberg, who amongst other things is founder of DuckDuckGo, a prolific angel investor, and a single founder. Hi, Gabriel. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. So, Jason, what's the backstory on how we met Gabriel? Well, uh, I think I just found Gabriel like I find pretty much everybody else in this world, which is via Hacker News. Uh, I've read probably most everything he's written, um, because pretty much everything he writes shows up on the front page of Hacker News. (laughs) And uh, he's written a lot of really interesting stuff, and I thought it'd be great to talk to him, because not only is he a successful entrepreneur, but he's also an angel investor, so he has a perspective from both sides of the table um and also he he does a lot of uh, other little things like he he's uh, runs some hackathons and he uh moderates some startup uh sites and i don't know he's just all over uh the area so i thought it would just be um we have a lot of fun stuff to talk about okay cool well i know that you've got a lot of questions for gabriel so why don't you, why don't you get started yeah, well, why don't we start with, uh, Gabriel, why don't we start with your background? Um, it said you, on your blog, it says you studied uh, physics at MIT, and uh, obviously you changed direction somewhere along the way. Uh, what, uh, how did you get into entrepreneurship and, and uh, tech startups? Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I went, into, I went into MIT actually thinking I would do chemistry, but that was sort of naive because I didn't really understand what it was. <laughs> right. um, and so the parts I liked about chemistry ended up being physics. So then I got into physics. And then the part of physics I was really interested in was in astronomy. Um, so I started doing that. But there's really no astronomy major at MIT. So I ended up doing physics. But then like about my junior year, I started realizing that physics involves going to grad school and it involves becoming a professor. And that sort of sucks. Right. Um, so I, I veered 180 degrees away from that. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I hurriedly took a couple of classes. I, I had always been interested in computers and did some like minor programming like on my calculator and basic and stuff in high school, but not like anything serious. Right. Um, and I took a class called um, like programming for web applications, and this was in... 2000 with Philip Greenspan. I don't know if you remember him. Yeah, well, he's written. He did. He started what? ARS Technica or something like that. Yep. ARS Technica. He, yeah. Yep. He had this like cool. It was like a hip <laughs> turn of the century startup in Cambridge, and they did all this. Uh, his his company. I think it was Ars Technica. That's also like a website now too, right? Right. That, that's why it's a little confusing because it was oh, like you know what it is. It's not Ars Technica. It's Ars Digita was his company. Ars Digita is it Ars Digita or ARS Digita? Um, you know what? I always said Ars Digita, but now that you say that, I don't know. <laughs> no, I think you're right. I think I would sound like an idiot if I went out and I started saying ARS Digita. Um, and um, I, yeah, it reminds me in high school. I think I said uh, someone was talking about. Remember. Um, what was the band? There was a band called uh, NXS. Is that yeah. right? I got yeah, right. INX, uh, INX or something. And <laughs> this girl's going, what did you call it? Will <laughs> be another example of that. No, I think it's right. So anyway, Justin, we'll pick up, I guess, Gabriel just was just, just said they're not the same thing. There's a, so there's ARS Digita and ARS Digita. There's ARS Digita and ARS Technica. Yeah, so Ars Digita was this company that Philip Greenspan wrote, and he was also at MIT um, as like an adjunct professor. And he had a class that he taught 
uh, call, I, you know, also for recruiting purposes, I'm guessing, but um, called like web applications or something. And I took it and it was in weird stuff. It was in Tickle and AOL server that no one ever uses except for them. But it did get me thinking about startups because it was like, he has that mindset. Right. And so I was sort of more interested in doing a startup after that. And so that, that summer, I went to Silicon Valley and I interned at this venture capital place that my uncle was helping to run uh, called Incutel. It's the CIA venture capital firm. Right. right. That's, that, that's Arnabelle. I've heard of them. Incutel. Okay. <laughs> it was just getting started. It was, it was quite interesting and fun. And I, you know, tried to come up with an idea during that summer and I came back and my intent was just to like quit school, <laughs> um, which was not, not good. Well, accepted by my parents, but right. Right. Well, you know, Justin and I had a big conversation about this in our last podcast about, you know, you know, whether we should go to college or not because of the debt and especially parents, you know, what parents tend to think about college for their kids, which is that you're going. <laughs> this, my parents were just like mortified by the even suggestion I would quit. <laughs> it was a but scary like, thought, right? <laughs> I know. Well, I'd already done three years and it was, I mean, I was like, well, I could always go back. In any case, I was really lucky because I, over the summer they had like transformed the physics major a bit right. and I had actually, I came back and I had completed all the requirements from the classes I had already taken. Oh, I, had a okay. bunch of, I had a bunch of credit coming into school anyway, so um, my my now wife, then girlfriend, just was like opening the bulletin and was like, I think you have all the requirements for this. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. And so I went into the physics department and I was like, can you retroactively give me my degree? <laughs> I think I have all the requirements. And they're like, yeah, you actually do. So um, we will do that. And so the only thing I was missing, this was sort of a crazy story, was that I didn't take the PE requirement at uh -huh. MIT, which is like mandatory, and they would not let me around that. Yeah, I can imagine PE at MIT being a very serious subject. <laughs> they took it really seriously. I thought it was like going to be a joke. And right, like, can I run around the block a couple times and somebody checks a box or something? And they were like, no, you cannot. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, they didn't make me pay. That was, like, the the um, agreement we went to. But I did have to go in twice a week and do PE. And so I ended up <laughs> my, getting my degree in February 2001. And um, I, finished, I did my last class in May 2000. What happens if you're too fat to finish the PE requirement? <laughs> oh, you, ha you also have to do a swim test. There's no getting out of it, I guess, unless you're, like, physically disabled or something. Hmm. Um, and the swim test is actually a thing that causes consternation because people can't swim and they they will not let people graduate unless you pass the swim test. So there's a bunch of people who end up not passing. Yeah, at the uh, University of Chicago where I went to school, I remember, you know, part of like your orientation week for freshmen is you had to do the swim test and there was a physical fitness test. And if you if you did exceptionally well in the physical fitness test, you got out of your PE requirements. But uh, yeah, you actually had to right. You had to pass those one way or another. You take classes or pass it, exempt yourself out of it. Um, so that's funny. Now, just for just out of curiosity, what was the what course? What was the PE class you had to take? Was it like badminton or something? Or? <laughs> I, I've always, I took soccer because that's what I'm. That's what I've always done. Oh, okay. Uh, so I you're like cool. I'm just gonna play play soccer for a couple a couple hours a week. No problem. Yeah, it's exactly what I did. It it actually worked really good. So I, I started working on this startup. This it was educational software startup, and um, I played soccer. <laughs> of course, Jason. You know Jason run a semi professional soccer team. So uh, so you guys are going to get on like a house on fire. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I played in college, and then I, I've, I've run and played like a like a men's semi-pro type thing. Nice. Ten years. So that's uh, yeah. Um, so anyway, um, so were you just sitting? Were you just? Did you stay on campus while you're working on this project? Was your was your girlfriend at the time like still in school or something like that? I mean. Yeah, my girlfriend was a math major, and then she went on to get a PhD at MIT in operations research. Oh, um, wow. wow. And we got married in between there. And so I had I had moved off campus into Central Square. Um, so I wasn't technically on campus, but I was there all the time. And right. then we eventually moved, I don't know how much you guys know over the area, but to Brookline and then to Waltham after that. Um, but we were commuting in basically every day. So I, I hung out at MIT during this whole period, and I eventually went to a grad program there in her building, uh, basically because I was there all the time. I thought I might as well just do this program part-time. What was the grad program? Technology and Public Policy, TPP. Okay. So, you know, I guess that served as a nice um, sort of segue for you. It's like you're kind of working on a startup, but you kind of get to sort of be on campus and be hanging out with your friends, and you're not kind of out in the big, scary world quite yet. Yeah, it worked pretty well. I mean, my first company was a terrible idea in retrospect for me to do. I, <laughs> well, I thought hired... there were no bad ideas in startup, just bad execution. <laughs> okay, you could call it bad execution. You're probably right because it, 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 well, it was too early, but now it's people have made money off of it, I guess. But um, I hired the wrong people. Um, what was that idea? It was. So my original idea was I wanted to do something, or, or my motivation was I wanted to do on, social entrepreneurship in a way. So I picked. I was interested in education, and I analyzed the education problem first, and I wanted to do something that involved increasing parental involvement because I thought that was a, where the high marginal benefit was. Mm-hmm. Right. So the way I applied that was um, over using the Internet, having parents being able to see what their kids are doing in class um, in elementary school. Um, which was a, an issue because the parents didn't usually know, and even parents who care, using the kid as an intermediary <laughs> didn't, didn't work very well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the audience as a kid can tell you that the information you're getting for the kid is suspect at best. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I made this, like, we made this portal, essentially, that would be, like, the the, par- the teachers would enter in the information, and the parents would see it, um, and which in and of itself isn't a bad idea in the sense that Blackboard and stuff has these contracts now that that they get pr- do pretty well at, but it it has all sorts of problems in it for a startup that doesn't have any money, <laughs> which right. is that the sales cycle is really really long. Like selling to school districts is sort of ridiculous, and they're not really interested in not well capitalized startups and people who have no previous education experience. Um, and then the teachers themselves aren't interested in inputting and even on a higher level aren't interested in dealing with parents <laughs> so <laughs> right. it's like the incentives right. are completely misaligned um no they, they like the kid being sort of the intermediary because then it's like this wall you know and uh, and then they only have to talk to the parents on parents night like once every few months absolutely and so i mean we we did build the software i got that piece done and we did beta test it in cambridge and in atlanta where i grew up but Beyond that, whoa, 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 wait! You're from Atlanta. I'm too. Yep. I'm from Atlanta too. Yep, yep. I grew up in Atlanta. Where Where are you from? I grew up in East Cobb, and I went to the uh, East Cobb Middle School and then the Walker School for high school. Walker, not JT Walker, right? That's different. Um, is JT Walker. The same is it thing? JT Walker? It's on 41. 
I went to uh, Padilla, which was in downtown Atlanta. Yeah, we yeah. To... We played Padilla and soccer a lot. Yeah, yeah. We used yeah. to. Uh, yeah, I remember playing against JT Walker. Well, oh, that's cool. It's funny because you think of it as JT Walker, but I, I, no one at Walker I ever met thought of it as JT Walker. <laughs> hey, just to, just to go back to that last thing, um, did did the failure of that and the way that, that that failed and the points that you just pointing out there did that help to frame all of your entrepreneurial endeavors from that point forward? Absolutely. I mean, that's not even the only ways it failed. I also hired all the wrong people, um, and I went about raising money wrong. Um, but yeah, so that failure was actually pretty hard on me personally because like. Um, I hadn't failed at that massive a scale before. <laughs> right. I, I figured that, like, you know, I'm pretty smart. I, I hired smart people. We should be able to figure this out. But, um, yeah, so I, I learned a lot of things that informed me thereafter. So it wasn't, certainly, it wasn't a loss. Um, one of the main things learned, of course, is that there are a lot of things out of your control. Like, luck is a big part of it, market timing, that kind of stuff. Um, and, it's not necessarily good to be way ahead of the market. <laughs> you, so that, that's one thing. Another thing I learned, I blogged about recently is, you know, just because you come up with a plausible argument why your software is awesome and everyone's going to use it is not necessarily the truth. <laughs> right. Um, right. You probably need to validate all your assumptions. Um, it's very rare that you just come up with a set of assumptions that are all accurate. Um, right. So, yeah, definitely informed my um, stuff thereafter. So how did you um, raise money for this startup? I mean, you're, you're about 20, 21 years old. You had no business or professional experience. How did you raise money? Um, so I didn't raise much. I raised $30,000, and it was from friends and family. Uh, <laughs> so you basically asked dad, you're like, look, dad, yep. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't go to my fourth year MIT, at least fund my startup. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what happened. He gave, he literally gave me the money from my, what it would have been my tuition, which had already been set aside and was like, all right, you can use this if you want, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good, well, you know what? That's actually not a bad incentive. You could tell all, you know, all these people who want to do startups who are in college, say, look, Get it done in three years and convince your parents to f- make your fourth year be your uh, your startup year. Don't they call that the FFF fund, the Friends, Family, and Fools? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but you figure the amount that you learn doing a startup. I mean, just imagine if you got to spend your entire fourth year. You're kind of just still living on campus or whatever, but doing a startup. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, that'd be cool. I thought it was great. I mean, I, I would recommend it. I mean, not everyone has the cash set aside, but um, right. it was. And then I, I got some from my uncle, too. But that was basically it. And then after that, I, I tried to raise money, but um, arguably it was a terrible time. I mean, it was a terrible time. It was, I tried to raise right after the crash, yeah, <laughs> literally right. in, in April right. 2001, and the crash was in March 2001. So that probably wasn't the best time to do it anyway. But I, even if it was, I don't necessarily think I would have been able to raise money because, I, you know, like you said, first time entrepreneur, it wasn't the greatest idea, et cetera. Um, but yeah, it wasn't a great time. And then I tried also to get this social entrepreneurship money angle, which is bigger now, but it, there was only a couple places to get it from then. Um, and I got decently closer with that, closer, but not close enough. How long were you working on that startup? So I worked it, on it for that whole year. After that year, um, the money essentially ran out. But I, ran, I still ran it for... Um, another year while I worked for the state of Massachusetts. So essentially the state of Massachusetts got $11 million to do the exact same thing that I wanted to do, um, to implement 
the portal for parents and stuff in Massachusetts. So it's called Virtual Education Space. And mm-hmm. I try to sell it to them, um, which is a whole nother bag of worms I didn't understand at the time, but now I know a lot more about. Like, that was never going to go anywhere, but what they did need is they need someone to build their software. I, I worked there for a year while still working on my startup on the side, and then after a year, for, for a couple of reasons that are probably irrelevant to everyone here, <laughs> I gave up working for them and decided to go off on my own again and do startups and consulting uh, to pay the bills. And... Um, I, at that point, I decided I would literally give up on the first idea. So I basically did it for two years. That consulting idea, consulting to pay the bills and then working on your side projects, is pretty much exactly what myself and Jason are doing and what we podcast about. And I think that um, that really is the most sensible way of kind of, get, it's a kind of medium risk strategy because there is, of course, the medium risk involved in that, you know. But I think that's, that's the best way. I thought it, you probably hit it to death then on your podcast, but just to put my perspective on it, I thought it worked absolutely perfect for me. Like, um, and, and my strategy was to um, charge enough where I could limit my hours to four hours a day and literally work no more than four hours a day on consulting so I could spend the rest um, working on startup stuff. <laughs> That's exactly what I, I try and do, which is that I, I want to just get my, um, my consulting done by lunch and then spend the rest of the day you know, or in the weekends or nights, whatever, working on the startup. So that's interesting. Is that what you do? Would you try and compartmentalize it like that? Like you just do the mornings or was it just start and stop? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I often did the, ended up doing the mornings because it just worked out that way because uh, my wife likes to sleep in and the classes were late. So I would often do it in the morning and then we would commute to MIT and then I work on the startup stuff. But I wasn't super hard-nosed about it, but I was pretty hard-nosed about keeping it to four hours a day. Right. Now, was it hard for you to pick up consulting work at that point in time? Because, I mean, I guess coming out of your startup, I mean, you, may, you didn't really necessarily have a ton of experience as a software developer outside of your own startup. No, but it was super easy. I don't know if it was just for me because I think a lot of it had to do with the MIT. But at the beginning, I basically just picked people off of Craigslist. And right. they were just like random people, you know, having little software projects and... I generally could close most of those. I would. I don't know if it was in my email sending or or my address or whatnot, but I would just be like, yeah, from MIT, I could do this. I, I was only charging fifty dollars an hour. That might have been. The other thing is, is like when you close a small deal, maybe a couple hundred buck deal. When they if they work with someone who's professional, they're just like so amazed to find a good IT provider that they will then go, okay, well, I've got this other project. I want to give you two grand to do this, right? Did you find that? That's exactly what happened, and then I would get referrals thereafter. So I didn't, I never, right from the get-go, I almost didn't have a shortage in business. Yeah, and I, I think I, and I think you're right about the MIT thing helping. That's, again, something Justin and I talked about in the last discussion um, podcast, which is that, you know, when you go to a top school, it's sort of like this, uh, it's sort of this filter. You know, if you come out and you say, oh, I went to MIT, people are going to say, assume that you're really bright. And uh, if you, say, dropped out of high school or didn't go to college, I mean, you may very well be just as bright, but it's just hard for people to know. And a lot of times people don't want to waste time and and, and give you a a, a chance. And to use one of my uh, soccer analogies, which I always (laughs) pull in, is that, you know, my soccer team, if someone calls me up or emails me and says, hey, listen, I heard about your team. I, you know, I played Division I soccer at, you know, such and such school. I was all conference or whatever. And I'll be like, okay, sounds good. Why don't you come out? Someone says, oh, I played Division II or Division III soccer 
um, I'll be like, eh, I may or may not be that interested, and I might invite them out or not. And if they say I didn't play, they didn't even play college. I mean, I'm rarely even interested in having them come out because it usually just means a sort of a waste of time for me. Where, but that isn't always true. There are some guys who never went to college for who knows what reason, but they're just unbelievable players. But it's just all a matter of like, you know, signal and noise. You just you're just going to focus on things that are high probability, and uh, that's why going to a top school it just gives you that advantage. People just give you that. Uh, sort of um, benefit the doubt right off the hook. Yeah, absolutely. Right I mean, so in Cambridge, I thought it was even a bit odd because I figured there were a lot of MIT people around, but I guess there wasn't. And then moving to Pennsylvania, where I live now, is just even more astounding. Like MIT, people are just sort of odd that they <laughs> met someone that went to MIT. It's a little weird. <laughs> yeah, I remember one time I was playing basketball with a friend of mine. So we're we're we're, we're at Emory University, and we're, I think we're playing some ba- basketball with one of the students there, and or something. And, and he asked he asked us if we went to school there, and I, we said no. And uh, the friend of mine says, "Oh, you know, I went to I go to Yale." And the guy just like freaked out. He's like, "Oh man, Yale! I gotta sh- let me shake your hand." <laughs> I mean, he's just literally blown away. Of course, he had never heard of University of Chicago, but Yale. I mean, he was literally like just you know, I'm really impressed. And uh, yeah, it, it has that effect. So I mean, it's it's like if you can get through the door. It, obviously doesn't make a difference but sometimes a lot of life is just getting through the door yeah right in effect it serves as sort of a warm intro without having an intro exactly and and i think the same thing is uh, is, is is working uh this another thing that works that way is like being say a yc um startup right if you come at a y combinator then and you send an email to uh TechCrunch or mash will say to cover your startup there's a good chance they're going to cover you right yeah i think that's um, absolutely true yeah. So, um, well, okay. So let's move on then. So you went off and you started consulting. So what happened from there? Um, I, well, the consulting part was, was not terribly interesting. <laughs> the the <laughs> startup part, um, I tried, I, I had met a, a business partner when I was working at VES, um, in the same building there. And we were trying just sorts of random ideas in a, in a way, like, Looking back, our like idea creation philosophy was sort of terrible in the sense that it was just meandering um, and not really questioning the assumptions. Like I don't know why I did such a poor job of that, but um, so we, we ended up sort of stabbing at various ideas. Some of which ended up turning a decent business on the internet, but none of which we executed terribly well. Um, we did coupons um, and we did a, a simple email client. Um, and some other ones that I'm totally blanking on at the moment. <laughs> oh, yeah, an um, email marketing um, uh, firm. And, and part of the reason why I failed here, like all three of those have decent businesses now, uh, but we didn't, we sort of gave up too early. Like it, we were, it wasn't a quick success, okay. so we gave up. Jason, I, can I just ask one thing? Because um, just Gabriel said there um, that he had a problem with the idea creation process, and he said it was bad. I'm just interested to very quickly hear what a good idea creation process is, and what and he was, you know, how that relates to assumptions, etc. Yeah, I mean, a good one is you write down all the assumptions on this business, and then you go out and well, even before that, you come up with a lot of ideas, and you start to think, okay, how, how big is the market here? Who are the customers going to be? Um, and then you, you compare across and pick your best ideas. And then you dive into those, write down all the assumptions of those ideas, and then you try to figure out how to prove those assumptions as quickly and cheaply as possible. And then you go out and do that. Um, 
And so I, I did none of that, basically. Right. Now, when you said we, is that the royal we, or did you actually have uh, some people working with you on these ideas? Oh, so I had a, I had a, uh, a partner, um, a business partner on this stuff, um, okay. although I did all the, all the coding. Okay. Now, when he's a business partner, was he putting in money, or was he helping sort of go out and talk to customers or vet strategy, or what was he doing? So he was mainly, um, so what happened was, is, um, he's a little older than me. Um, he had this, uh, his name's Dan Cunningham. He runs a chocolate business called dance.com on the internet, mm-hmm. um, which had spun out of excited home. So, and, and it had like a, a $12 million investment. So he was writing the dot-com kind of bubble r- right when I was in college right. and then, he had leased this whole building where VES was working. He had 60 employees and stuff, and then the crash happened, and they basically weren't making any money. So he had to fire everyone, and that's how we were leasing part of the building. In any case, I ended up meeting him, and we were both interested in entrepreneurship and everything, and he didn't necessarily have the tech skills, but he had already been running this email marketing business and wanted to know if I would come in and help. Um, and so I, I did that, and we got to, um, you know, work together. And then he was like, okay, I'll give you 50% of this company. Um, I think you're, you know, really good. Do you want to just split this with me? And I was like, sure. Um, so that's how it sort of initiated. Um, I think in my head it was like I just came off this massive sort of failure and didn't feel like I really knew what I was doing as much, and he seemed to right. know more uh, on the business side. and. That's sort of my perspective. So at the beginning, he was more of the business end. Although in retrospect, I don't think we were executing the business end very well. But right. at, the, at the time, I felt like you know I was I was getting all this business help, um, and so so he was uh, and for the email marketing stuff, he was giving customers, and then for the other stuff, he was doing the QA and uh, feedback and um, you know helping to do the business strategy. Right now. Uh, when when you said he gave, he offered you fifty percent of the company, was he was that in lieu of paying you because he had brought you in as an employee, right, or to have or, or as a consultant to help him with with the email marketing stuff? I mean, how did that transition? What was the, what was what actually changed in that transition other than you owning fifty percent? Yeah. So what happened was is I would I would do all this stuff at VES and the internet connection sort of sucked, and so I would go down there and fix it, and he had no idea what was going on, and so that's how I ended up getting a talk. And then one day he ran this chocolate business, and so email sending it out um, at Christmas is very important because that's like where you make all your money. Right. And his like all the employees were gone. He had no idea how to run all the servers and everything, and so he couldn't send out these messages. Like, oh, I can send out these emails for you. Um, he's like, oh, I can pay you. And so I was like, no, nah, this will take me like five minutes. And um, so so I sent out these messages, and then he was like, oh, well. Um, you know, do you do consulting and stuff? And I was like, yeah, I do consulting. That's when I was about to quit and do the consulting. Right. And so he was one of my first customers. Um, and then he, you know, I, I was billing him monthly for like a couple months. And he was like, hey, do you want to, uh, you know, work on this company full time? So, yeah. So the transition went from being paid. I, I can't even remember whether I was still being paid or not. Um, but it, it became more of a contractor to a founder of this company. So how were you paying your bills if uh, you weren't being paid? Um, so I, I was doing this other consulting. 
Oh, okay. All right. So you kept that up and started working on it. And, 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 and is this what transitioned ultimately into the names database company? Yeah, yeah. So I was also just doing random stuff, and I had put up these names pages, um, basically pages of random names where I paired uh, census first names and last names together. Um, right. And about six months later, Google indexed them, and I started getting all this traffic from them. Um, right. And so I came to uh, Dan, my business partner, and I told him about this. And, you know, I was like, what can we do with this, basically, you know? Why why did you put the random names on the internet, though? I mean, how did that start? Why do I do anything? (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, it's just like, uh, was it just like an arbitrary kind of coding exercise? Yeah. So, like, I I had, um, I didn't mention this, but in, in... in this area, too, I also wrote a quick book called 50 Rules to Make You Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise. Right. <laughs> um, and I had made this, put this on the internet in this ebook. I, I, it's another thing I gave up on too easily because it probably would be decently big at this point. And so right. I was getting search engine traffic from that. And so I was interested in this SEO space um, in this period of like 2001, 2002. And it just occurred to me that there were all these keywords that had no pages for, like what they call the long tail now. Yeah. And names were like a huge component of that. So just one day I figured, oh, I could just, where can I get the list of names? And I found the census. It was just sort of on a whim. I just did it one afternoon. Hmm. And so you started getting traffic from that. And then what, what kind of business did that turn into? What was Names Database? Um, so at the beginning, it was nothing. It was just this, this pages of names, and it was actually on my personal domain. Um, and then we, we were just like, okay, what can we do with this? And so we put up a sign-up form on it um, just to see if people would sign up, and people signed up. There was, there was nothing really behind it. Um, and so once people signed up, then we, we thought, okay, People were searching for names. <laughs> They're entering their name. <laughs> but what was the mess? What was the message that got them to sign up? Please sign up to this page with a name on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, exactly. that's amazing. <laughs> and they signed up. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yeah. A lot of people, hundreds of people a day. Um, and um, yeah, so like, I mean, so the quickest path of something we thought of was like we have this database of names, and why don't we? <laughs> call it names database it makes sense. It's, it's, it's pretty you know pretty straightforward um and that's sort of how it transitioned i mean we basically just started creating this database and then we thought of business models on top of that um like the first thing we did was we said okay well we only have a few thousand people in here it's not terribly useful but um what if we charge you to um when someone signs up with a particular name um, we'll email you. And so that was our, the first thing we sold. Um, why, why would and, people want to pay for that? I'm, I'm sorry, I think I'm being thick, but why would that be interesting? Oh, yeah. So, so this was before Facebook, before all social networks and everything. And so it was actually hard to get in touch with old friends and classmates. And so the idea was is you would... Um, this was a database of names where you could find old friends and classmates, where you could search for their name literally and then send them a message. I see. Um, and so... If the person wasn't in there, but you still wanted to get in touch with them at some later point, you could, um, you know, type in their name, and and um, we would notify you when that happened. Um, so that that quickly transitioned in a number of things, like 
pay per message to eventually a bundle, uh, sort of like classmates.com, where you can search the whole database for free, but if you want to send a message, uh, any number of messages, then you pay for this yearly fee. Now, what were you built? What type of technology were you using to build this stuff? Pearl. Pearl. <laughs> okay. Now, is this something you just picked up uh, along the way, or was it something you learned in, in that uh, class you took at MIT with Phil Greenspoon? Phil Greenspoon's class was in Tickle, which I almost used, <laughs> which I'm really glad I didn't. Right. Uh, uh, Pearl, I picked up. It was big at MIT, which is sort of how I picked it up. But one summer, I uh, worked at the Lincoln Lab. It's this defense place, and I was detecting near-Earth asteroids. And right. I just decided, you know, I could do anything this summer. I'll use it to learn Pearl. And so that's really how it, how it started. So wh okay. what was your exit from names? The exit from names was um, we ended up growing virally, ended up with, you know, 20 million people in the database. And the business transitioned to be very much like classmates.com. Um, and that was the exit we sold to classmates.com to, you know, expand their database, especially internationally. Jason, of, of all the, the startup stories I've ever heard, that is the most take a, a grain of sand and turn it into a pearl story that I've ever heard, I think. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, one thing is, I think it's, is true is that if you dig into these stories, um, it, they often turn out to be kind of complicated and kind of surprising. And it's kind of, we, we talked about this, I think, in, in, the, in the interview with uh, Jessica Ma, which is that you have this something that I call the miracle function, which is like, oh, I just started a startup, and then we ended up selling it for millions of dollars. It's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Let's, get in, let's look inside that miracle function and find out what actually happened, which was a lot of thrashing around, experimenting, um, you know, a lot of things that just didn't work, and then something kind of works, and you just kind of go with it, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Definitely. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, and, and that's and the, and the unfortunate part about how a lot of these stories are told over time is they get sort of compressed. It's like a compression algorithm is run on them in the press. And to, so you get these very simplified, distilled stories that aren't very accurate. I mean, they're true, but they give people this the wrong impression, and it creates this mythology that, oh, you just kind of come up with an idea, and you go work on it, and a couple of years later, you sell it, and then you're rich, and then that's it. <laughs> and nobody really understands how that happens. It's like, I don't understand how do they get funding or how do they build it or how do they get people or how do they get customers? I mean, it's like all this confusing, messy details that nobody quite understands. And it's just all in the details. So I think it's fun that we're able to dig in a little bit with uh, Gabriel and find out the truth. Another thing I want to ask is when moving from the very first moment when you thought, okay, I've got something here to selling it for, for I don't know, for whatever, but to having that 20 million customers. How how long a time period was there? How much hard work was involved? Like like how much pain was involved <laughs> to go from the the grain of sand to the pearl? Um, I feel I I think there was a lot of pain. <laughs> right. um, so there was a year or two before even the name stuff happened, and then the name stuff happened. Um, we put up the site on like April twentieth, I think, two thousand three. Um, and we sold almost exactly three years later. Um, the first uh, six months, there was basically nothing going on, on the site except the initial traffic. Like it wasn't, nothing was taking off or anything. Um, and we basically that summer tried to engineer and eventually succeeded, like a viral uh, engineered this viral process where people were referring their friends and coming in virally. Um, that took about six months. 
of just tons and tons of experimentation to get it working. Um, once that was working, okay, hold on. I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we got a miracle function at any time. Miracle function, yeah. This is another miracle function, right? We worked for six months and then we came up with something viral. <laughs> okay, um, right. Okay, so what kind of things did you try? And by through these experiments, I mean, how were you able to sort of bootstrap your knowledge and come up with something that would work? I mean, what did you end up trying that worked in the end too? So this was the most sort of engineered viral thing I've ever, you know, I've come across, but like basically we broke it down and, and said, okay, there's a, a sign up page. And then once you sign up, you know, you got to get people to refer their friends. And then once you refer them, you got to get them to click through. So there's three steps. Mm-hmm. Each of those steps need to be optimized in such a way where if you multiply them all together, you get, um, you, you yield a half a person for every person who comes in because then they yield a half a person and that sum yields up to one. Um, and then it's self-sustaining. And so, um, we took each of those steps and, and kept running experiments to get them as high as, as possible. Um, and so for each one of those, there was a series of lots of experiments, um, you know, to test for like the email, test different subjects, messages, um, that kind of stuff for the referral ended up being that we ended up essentially putting the, uh, referral page before you could get into the product. So you needed to try to refer your friends before that. Um, and then for the, or the signup page, we tried, you know, different number of fields, layouts, um, text above the fields, et cetera, et cetera, until all those, um, percentages rise high enough where it's, you know, the the viral loop worked did you use like excel or something I and mean, how did you keep track of all your testing i built this um uh stats dashboard essentially um in Perl um that would be refreshed you know every time you refresh it would hit the database and give you the right numbers for that day um so it was like this proprietary dashboard thing i did use excel to uh to do the visualizations like especially with the the click through um ended up being the hardest part um and to part of the reason it was so hard is because you get an email um but this is before everyone was on email all the time and so the click through can take a long time and so to get the reminders right when to send them out and you know what they should look like i would make these exports into excel and graph it over time and so like an experiment would run each week and then you could compare week to week the curves over time and see, you know, which one was doing better. Okay. So you're doing, building the stat stuff. Did you ever think, Hey, this, this stat stuff, this tracking testing stuff that I'm building, this dashboard might be useful. I could turn this into a product because this is way back before Google analytics and was it urchin, which was bought by Google and all these other analytics companies have come out. Yeah, no, it never occurred to me whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever look back, like, once it got to, like, 2007, 2008, like, oh, man, I had something really that I could have leveraged back then. Um, um, yeah, I mean, it, it probably would have taken a lot of work. Um, but, yeah, there's certainly been good stats exits. I mean, one caveat I would make on this whole stats thing mm-hmm. is that um, my because I had so much traffic coming through the site, like, I could do basically anything I did was statistically significant, which is a situation where a lot of people, especially starting out, are not in. I see. Um, so I was, there. there's that caveat where I was lucky to be able to do that so easily. Right. If that makes sense. Listening to your story, it sounds like you could just try a bunch of different SEO strategies and 
use that to seed a business? Yeah, so in the end, the, in, the viral component was necessary in the sense that it brought in like 95% of the people. But the SEO was also critical to, build, to bring in the initial people and to keep seeding uh, the viral process because like the so- people's social networks you know, are contained such that you can exhaust them um, with the referral process. So you need these random people coming in SEO generating new networks so you get new bubbles uh, that pop up, if that makes any sense. Mm. Yeah, yeah it does. No, that's, that's a really good point. Um, Okay. Well. Uh, okay. So after the name, you, you you sold the names database. So who did you sell it to? Um, we sold it to classmates.com, but they were really united online, uh, okay. which is this public company who had bought classmates a year earlier. Okay. And after that, what you know? Did you work? Did you work for them for a while, or were you able to move right on and do something else? What happened? Part of. And my uh, business partner was at, more adamant about this than I was, but he was. He didn't want to work for them at all. He thought that was a bad idea. Right. He wanted to move on to something new. So part of the whole negotiation process was getting that down as much as possible. And we got it down to basically zero, which in okay. re- retrospect, you know, I don't, I, it, we, we probably should have done a little more. <laughs> but um, so we basically didn't work for them at all. We had like a, a few months of consulting, but we didn't have to go on site at all. Like, I think I went out there once and... Um, so we almost immediately moved on to other things. Would you have got more value? Would you have got a higher valuation if you'd have brokered to do more for them? Yeah, probably. And in particular, like, I don't know how much you guys get into this in your show, but like there's a concept of earnouts, which a lot of people um, shy away from, generally including myself. But um, that means that you work for the company and then you may get more money. Or they may break up the sum based on milestones thereafter and the way our deal worked and the incentives and everything our there was no real incentive for them to engage with us because we weren't going to be there a long time and it was a really complicated viral process that they like almost messed up from day one when they took it over um and i was pretty invested in emotionally and so i I was telling them to do various things and they just weren't doing them and so i don't think it worked out as well for them as it could they certainly made their money back and more but like I really think it could have been big for classmates, um, and it just it wasn't that level. And I think if I had worked on it there, I could have turned it into more. But maybe that's just a hindsight. What if? I don't know. Interesting. Right. Um, so after the uh, after the the acquisition, I mean, how long did it take before you moved on to your next big project? Um, it took a while. So like, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I. Um, thought about doing more what you guys are doing but more tv and i want to do like a tv podcast kind of show mm-hmm. um and i did a couple episodes of that and then before sort of giving up on that um and then i sort of messed around with other ideas my business partner had one idea and we worked well, on that a little bit wait one sec what was the tv idea specifically and well what, yeah. eventually one of my I think my, possibly my ideal job would be like Charlie Rose. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, well, it's so. funny because Justin and I talk about that. And Justin, I, I've somehow convinced Justin that the ultimate lifestyle is if we had like a four-hour morning show that all we did is just like <laughs> talk and have various guests to, on. And if we could earn enough money, that would just be absolutely <laughs> the best thing ever. 
it just occurred to me one day. It's like, man, I wouldn't mind if I woke up and it's like seven to eleven or something every day. We're just on, t- you know, it's like a radio show, and that would be a blast. And I told Justin about. It, and now Justin's really pissed that that's not what he gets to do every day. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be really cool. That would be fun. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, so go on. So go on about that. Oh yeah. So I mean, I I did that um, a, a little bit, but I I really couldn't think of guests or a series of guests that super excited me um and so i sort of gave up on that after after doing it completely wrong in the sense of spending way too much money building a little studio in my house for it oh really uh, that's cool you build you actually build a studio yeah yep well how, did, uh, I mean, how much did you spend and what kind of i mean what did you do exactly i probably spent not an ungodly amount but probably spent five thousand dollars on it um would you like paint I, the walls black and put soundproofing in and stuff like that? Put a desk and like a yeah back- chairs and I got some cameras and some professional lighting. Um, I mean, and, five thousand bucks is nothing really. Yeah, um, you know, I bought the whole prosumer stuff. You know, yeah, um, uh, you know, lapel mic and stuff like that. It, it, basically, as cheaply as possible to get decent production. You know, as you probably know, Justin. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, anyway, so like, I got, I, I did a couple guests who, who were actually really good and I liked doing the interviews, but then I just, I really couldn't think of a stream of guests that really excited me. So then I, I just sort of let it linger and started playing around with other things. What um, were the guests? What, what were the guests? Who were the guests? The guests were, it was, it was right about, it was the end of 2006. So it was in the political cycle. Um, and I got the Senate uh, Green Party candidate for Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. Um, and then a local uh, candidate, um, and you know, I had them come on and basically talked about politics. Well, you know, uh, Gabriel, one of the useful things is to find a partner like Jason, who basically you just wind him up and let him go, and he'll just keep on talking for hours. So if you have <laughs> <laughs> if you have long t- long pieces of dead air to fill, you can just basically say, "Jason, go," <laughs> and he just he won't shut up. <laughs> well, you don't have to say go; you just have to ask me to stop talking at That's some point. Right. <laughs> Well, you know, um, I mean, I think one of the benefits of having a partner, and it's like for us anyway, it's like whenever you start getting burnout or you just kind of other things start intruding on your life that you feel like you need to attend to, this other person is like, hey, we got to do a show. We got a guest or we got, you know, so it just forces you to keep going. So that's the, and that's the same thing, I guess, with, you know, having co-founders for startups. Um, you know, whenever, gets, whenever you get burnout or you have other things, it's just they keep pulling you back in. So you're a single founder now, Gabriel, is that correct? But you've, you've had business partners in the past. So why did you make that transition? Um, well, so when I was starting DuckDuckGo, I was interested in working with um, someone else. And I had someone in particular in mind um, who we were kicking around various ideas and also went to MIT. And um, it just... A number of things in his life changed dramatically right at that time, and it just didn't work out. And I had no one else in mind, and I liked my idea, and I could do it myself. So I just sort of went ahead and see what I could do by myself. That's sort of how I ended up there. I, I think it's, it's, it's one of those examples. I mean, you don't want to force it, right? I mean, if you have an ideal partner, you have someone there who, who would be complimentary and who's enthusiastic and, and really wants to do it with you and be committed, then great. But if you don't, I mean, going out and trying to, and trying to force a, a fit is probably not a good idea either. 
Um, it seems to me because you're just incre- you're increasing the risk that this person isn't going to be a fit, and they're going to, you know, because if you start something by yourself, and you know, yeah, you have the challenge of of keeping your motivation up and doing everything yourself. But if somebody else, you bring somebody else into it, and they start to become distracted or less interested or want to go in a different direction, you're kind of screwed. That can just bring the whole thing to its knees. So. Absolutely. In my case, I'm, I guess, probably a little unusual, but like I've never had a motivation problem, really. Um, I'm sorry, I want to ask you one thing about it. I mean, did you have any sources of um, like support? Were there friends who were working in the startup world who you could share ideas with and kind of you know, keep abreast of progress updates, that kind of thing? So I was sort of, interestingly enough, like built names database and in almost complete isolation (laughs) because we didn't raise money we didn't have any employees um you know i did everything you know all the servers and everything and we didn't really ask for advice or have any advisors so it was it was really literally almost complete isolation and then you know when we sold and then we moved here i knew no one in pennsylvania when we moved so i was essentially in complete isolation again Right. Also in the startup world, like I didn't really know anyone else in the startup world. I didn't spend much time in Silicon Valley besides that one summer. Um, and so only recently have I tried to um, raise my profile a little bit, and it's been great. I've met a lot of interesting people. And so now I feel like I have more people I can talk to. But um, back then, no, like I, I hardly had anyone. When did you first start working on DuckDuckGo? I started, I, I worked on this other idea that sort of transitioned into it um, called I've Got a Fang. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I started working on that in the, probably the summer of 2007. I'm sorry, uh, wait, I got a fang? I've got a like, fang, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? <laughs> that is a, that's the name of a They Might Be Giant song. That's where that came from. But um, it was an idea sort of like Squiddo, if you're familiar with that. Squid, oh, uh, Squid-O or, I, I pronounce it squid which is probably squid maybe it's squid I, I probably have it wrong. I actually, but, I mean, a friend of a friend is the one, a company built that, I think, built that for Seth Godin, right? Yep, yep. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, the basic idea was that, like, also search-related, just that for, what happened was, is we took a stained glass class, and I searched stained glass on Google and wasn't getting good results, and... Then, like, we went to the class, and I asked the lady who ran it. I was like, okay, so where do I go online for all this stuff? And she, like, you know, had all the lists of the best sites and blogs and everything. And I was like, wow, you know, she knows way better than Google what, what it is for this term. Mm-hmm. And it just occurred to me that that happens for every topic on the web, you know? Like, there's some right. guy or girl who knows the right best results. Um, what if we could get that, them out of their head and onto the, you know, the Internet, at least to supplement search? And so that was really that idea. And so I built these tools for people like that to, to do it, but I couldn't really nail the customer acquisition part. Um, mm-hmm. And I didn't spend that long on it before I realized that, you know, wow, there's been Wikipedia and other uh, data sets have been around for 10 years already sort of solving that problem, like delicious and such. Right. Um, and so why am I even wasting my time trying to get people to enter it? Why don't I just write on those? And that's where it sort of transitioned into what DuckDuckGo was. How did you come up with the name DuckDuckGo? Um, no real story there. <laughs> One day I was just on a walk, and it just sort of popped into my head. And I was like, 
you know, that's a good name for a company, and I'm going to go with it. I like it because it's very memorable. It's 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 yeah, it's very brandable. Now, okay, so DuckDuckGo, why don't you describe it for us in in simple terms? Exactly what it is. I mean, because because people might think, well, you're just competing against Google. I mean, isn't that like you know crazy? It probably is crazy. Um, it is a search engine. You know, it is a general purpose search engine designed to replace your Google use. I mean, that's it in its simplest form. Mm-hmm. Um, it's genesis or motivation was that I was finding you know less satisfactory results on Google, like I was saying, but for a number of ways, not just relevancy, also that there was a lot of spam and there increasingly is a lot of spam in Google because people try to game it. Um, and then more higher level than that, I just still find, and even increasingly so, that Google's results pages are just, they don't make inherent sense. This is sort of a hard concept to convey, but like if you ask people what like that or this means, the titles and descriptions, they don't really know because snippets aren't even sentences and right. why things are in what order don't make sense. And so what happens is, is people just click forward and backward a lot on the links until right. they find something they like, which is a habit they've learned for 10 years. But my whole thesis was, okay, wouldn't it be great, or at least some percentage of people would prefer if the results pages actually made some more sense and you could get an answer to your query or get information about your query at the top in readable sentences. Um, right. So that's sort of the uh, motivation for it. Well, how are you fighting against the spam problem? Because if you're writing on top of Google, don't you have the same issues that just passed up to you? Right, level? so a couple ways. So one is we're not currently using Google in okay. any capacity, um, but we the some of the APIs we do use, uh, like Bing, and has that problem, of course. Right. So there, there's two ways that we've combated it. One is that we use these human-powered sources like Wikipedia, which have their own spam fighting mechanisms in, in there. And so Wikipedia does a great job of weeding out spam. Um, right. And it's basically because human people look at every article and get rid of it. Um, right. So we write on that um, and use that to a great degree. And then in addition to that, I crawl the web um, once a month about and aggressively get rid of spam way more than Google does or Bing. Right. And so I will go and take the Bing feed and then uh, look at it. But before I display it to you, remove all those sites and... The, the, that begs the question, okay, why doesn't Google or Bing remove those sites? I don't really know the answer to that. My conjecture is that they consider it, uh, there, there's two reasons. One, they consider it censorship, um, and they don't want to go down that road, maybe mm-hmm. for antitrust or whatnot. And two, my mechanism involves a lot of heuristics, Um Right. that I've built up over time, and they seem very anti-heuristics. I'd like, you know, one thing that's really interesting about this, okay, so you're going after a giant. This is a David and Goliath uh, situa- scenario. and But what you're doing is you're going after their Achilles heel, which you've just described, which is they are so big that they have to be careful about things like censorship and antitrust accusations, so they can't do some things better just because of their size. So you're like, fine, I'll go do them because nobody cares about me censoring the web, right? And uh, that's really interesting because that's kind of your niche, right? You do a better job where they can't do it. Simply, Absolutely. That has become my sort of business thesis against them, which is do things that Google can't copy easily for whatever reason. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's others too, like, you know, I have this whole thing where I'll send you to other search engines. 
Google could do that, and they say they don't care about revenue, but they they have stopped short on that. <laughs> like they won't send you directly to Amazon, or as I will, you know. Right. I like it a lot. I'm going to start. I I I played around with it a few times because. Um, it was on, you know, it's like come up in Hacker News, and I've read an article by you, and I'm like, oh, I should check it out again. And but you know, one thing I think is, it's, it's like for me, it's just habit, right? You know, Google is my homepage; I don't even think about it. It's just kind of pops up. So I guess you know, one thing is trying to get people or enough people to like, how do I make DuckDuckGo my homepage or get them to make it their homepage? Yeah, exactly. I mean, so. That is certainly something I focus on. I mean, I try to get people, I tell people to set it at their browser or their homepage or they're in their browser for a week, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And that's usually enough time to get people to convert. But um, certainly customer acquisition is a big issue. Um, Could you do something where, like, people have, like, the kind of emerging of the Squidoo Duck, 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 concept where, okay, so you have these sort of curators or people who are experts in certain areas, and it, and it uses their sort of social network. It's because it, if because people are following them kind of like their Facebook page rather than Facebook page, it's kind of like their DuckDuckGo page in a way, like somehow leveraging uh, social networks of experts in individual fields. Anything that makes sense, merging those concepts? Um, I'm not quite. I- I'm not sure I totally quite get it. I'm not uh, sure I quite get it either. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just so gonna read. I think the closest thing to that, which I have been exploring, you know, is like uh, initially I was using Delicious. Now I'm not currently, but I've been trying to work it back in again. But like, you can search Delicious for a topic, right, and get the sort of crowdsourced expert view on what are the best links for that. Um, right. Similar to that, uh, Gabriel. Um, it's almost like you've picked the, you've picked the only business that you couldn't replicate your previous previous success on because <laughs> because this is the only business in the world that you can't do SEO for, right? So you have to get your customers in a different way. Yeah, that's sort of true. I It's completely different than the original business. Um, I have gotten some customers via SEO, though, I must say. Um, I have found ways to do that. <laughs> okay. That's interesting. Um, what about a viral a strategy? Can you Can you do... Think of a viral strategy for it. I've been well, thinking for three years. I haven't come up with anything great, but if you guys have any ideas, I'm I'm totally <laughs> would would love to find a viral strategy for it. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about what your customer acquisition strategies or user acquisition strategy, I guess, um, has been so far. And because I'd be curious to find out how you've built up the user base that you do have. Right. So I've tried a lot of different things, but really, it seems that. <laughs> it's mostly been word of mouth. Um, and ultimately, that's probably what it's going to have to be. And so I've, I've come to believe more recently that I should spend just keep spending more time on product and making it better and better because the people are spreading it. And that's where I'm getting the best. That's my best channel at the moment. But right. there have been good ones that have built me up to this point. The, um, the best two have been uh, Reddit ads in particular and um, SEO um, so Reddit ads, I, I stumbled, I tried a bunch of different advertising, you know, Google AdWords, like, and it ended up being, I could convert a user, but it was actually very costly. So I could try to raise money to do that, but, um, I didn't really want to do that for a number of reasons. Um, right. but Reddit actually just the user base matches people trying out new search engines and they came out with their advertising program and it's still a great deal. Um, and I was able to run ads there and, and it actually really increased my user base 
from that. The word of mouth one's interesting because if you think about it, that is exactly how Google spread. I mean, I remember when Google first came out and it was, I became a Google customer because of word of mouth. Absolutely. I mean, and the key there, right, is, I mean, this is why it's so hard. And people said that it was impossible to do word of mouth search engines again because you need to have like a wow effect, right? Mm-hmm. Google had a wow effect where you saw Google and you were like, wow, I got to share this with five people. Um, getting to that wow effect on top of Google is, is difficult. Um, but there are niche areas where it's possible. Um, okay, well, here's an interesting thing. I have a couple of interesting questions I think about this. But first is... Um, your technology, I mean, you know, you're, you're competing against Google. Google has acres and acres and acres of server farms. I mean, what kind of infrastructure are you running this on? So my approach has been to use external APIs and treat them as commodities wherever possible. So I'm basically, they use most of that, right, to download the Internet and put it into a link graph, which... Mm-hmm. Bing does almost exactly the same, and so does Ask, and Yahoo did before recently, and there's a couple others. So I sort of treat that as a commodity and use that off the shelf. So that gets rid of most of all the server needs off the bat. So you make, you make calls to Google and Bing? You write on top of their API? Is that what you're saying? Yes, not Google, though. Um, not Google. So I, have, um, I use their API, and then I also have my own index, um, so I use a bunch of APIs, and I have my own index, and then my own negative index, that whole spam thing. Right. And then I merge them all together uh, for the results. What database do you use to store all your results? Postgres. So, so if I do a search that's a new search, does that basically ping all those APIs in an instant and then store it in your database, and then when people come along and do a search, it then takes it from your database? Is that how it yeah, works? Like a, a lazy load, I guess you call it. Right. right. So... I, it's, I guess it's a bit more complicated in the sense that um, I, ser- I store my stuff. Actually, I guess I use a number of databases. I store my stuff in Postgres and Solar. And then depending on the query, I'll, I'll ping different APIs. Um, so I have all this sort of front-end processing that um, some natural language stuff, some just other stuff that identifies different parts of your query to determine what APIs to use. I'll go ping them. And then I'll, I'll save all the results in a memcache store um, so that, it, you know, if you ping it later, it'll be quick. Um, and then I merge it all together, if that makes any more sense. Yeah, that does. How big is the memcache store? Um, you know, I don't even know. I often wipe it quickly, so it's not, usually not that big. My whole point with it is that people click back a lot, like we said, so it really needs to be fresh at least for a few second, a few minutes. So if you do click back and refresh the results it'll happen instantly. Um, right, right. How long does it take to gather results from the APIs and stuff? Like if, it, if it's a completely fresh query that hasn't been called before? Uh, well, you can test it, but under a second. That's great. I don't know how you've managed that from, from multiple APIs. How is that even possible? So the, um, you want to first get your network infrastructure as quick as possible right. uh, between them and the APIs. And then you don't want to do anything in serial um, so I, I, the request comes in to Nginx at this point, and I'll send back stuff quickly. And then on the client side, it'll then request, um, it'll, it'll send back initially which APIs to request. And then on the client side, it'll go do a number of requests in parallel. Hmm. And so those will come back via Ajax. Um, and it all gets then written 
on the screen on the client side, sort of in parallel. Ah, uh, uh, so you you use so you the the parallelization works through AJAX, right? Because you can write um, that's because each each call cr- sort of creates a new um, instance like of a page, I guess, a Perl script or something, which then calls a server, yes, uh, an API exactly. call. And right. so, and then my stuff, right? So my database, which is mainly the zero click stuff, comes back instantly because you know it's sitting on my servers. So what often happens is you'll see results immediately, but then more results will load below. Um, so it it looks it, it doesn't appear that there's any slowdown. Yeah, isn't it like that's almost like a trick? Those like table loading tricks. Like I can't remember this, but I think I don't know if it's this, it works this way or not. But I remember at one point, like if you had a giant table, it would take forever to render. So you want to like a, a series of smaller tables with fewer rows. So yeah, that it's very funny that you mentioned that. I totally remember doing that. <laughs> yeah, that's how HTML works. If you have it in one big table, it'll 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 render everything internally before it should. So you have to break up the table and you want to break it up every now and then. So obviously, given that you're performing. I guess up to ten, or I don't know, five to ten query, like five to ten AJAX calls um, for every request. If you were going, if you were the scale of Google, that's obviously five times the traffic that they've got. <laughs> so I mean, so you're going to enter these kind of scaling issues earlier than they would, I would imagine, right? So they do, and now increasingly with the instant thing, they do a bunch of AJAX calls. Um, you know, with layer autocomplete and whatnot. Right, right, right. But um, the these calls are actually pretty quick, and they're all modularized, so I could put um, each different type on a different server and stuff. So the scaling issues, at least at the, in the next two orders of magnitude or something, don't seem very complex to me. Okay, yeah. Um, so well, one thing I, I, I didn't get an answer to yet, which I'd like to hear, is, is how many actual servers or server instances are you running at any given time? Um, I have, I think, let's see, I think four. Something four. Are like these servers or are these like EC2 server instances? One EC2 and three hard servers. And how big are these servers? How powerful are What are they? Um, they're old servers, um, old IBM servers, like old Netfinity servers. Um, they each have eight gigs of RAM in them, um, and two processors, um, and then the EC2 is a um, large instance, eight gig of RAM large instance. Well, okay. Well, why don't we talk about what's sort of the the revenue model for DuckDuckGo? So you may have noticed there's currently no ads on the site. So right. um, at some point in the past, there were some ads, and I just felt that they weren't relevant enough, and I was getting some complaints, so I took them down. And then a few months ago, I also had a sponsorship banner on the right, which I did for a few months and then took down. So th- those were making a, a little bit of money at the time. But longer term, it's, it's these contextual ads that you see on Google. But the goal is to stay lean and such that I don't have to have lots of advertising at all, never above the results. And so my goal now is maybe to have at most one ad per page, uh, only when it's super highly relevant and clearly marked. Yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, that's a good way to differentiate yourself. Um, okay, I just had an idea, uh, another potential, I don't know, customer acquisition idea. I don't know. Okay, so let's say that you, so I'm looking at, um, I'm looking at a page on a particular topic, and I say, hey, you know what? I know a lot about this, and he really needs three or four links, right? I'd love to submit them, and like you know, like a Hacker News kind of thing, and I'd love to get points. 
You know, like what if people could, what if I could submit a, a link on a topic and I get a point for it and then I get ranked as like, you know, I get DuckDuckGo karma, DuckDuckGo points or DuckDuckGo expert points or whatever. And people can, you know, vote vote these things up. So you kind of have kind of like a merging of some of the concepts from like a Hacker News or, or Reddit for, but on a topic basis. Have you thought of anything like that? Yeah, I have been thinking about that a lot, like adding this kind of social gaming thing. So at some point I had an ability where you, you could submit like zero click info um, and like 90% of what I was getting was spam. Mm-hmm. So I, I sort of shut it off, but I didn't have the, the karma piece yet. So mm-hmm. maybe with that combination and opening up the community to be able to also get points for getting rid of the spam, you know, um, yeah. maybe good. I, my only hesitancy is that like it's too gimmicky or something, you know. Really? Um, hmm. But in in two thousand and one, um, I tried to get a startup going, and obviously that was just after the bubble burst, and it didn't work for me. But um, I built like this sixty page business plan, and the startup was called All Channels. And basically, what it was was that I felt that that Google, just like you, have felt that the Google isn't the most relevant search engine, and that the most relevant search engine would be a human moderated search engine. So my mm-hmm. concept was called All Channels. And basically, you could come to allchannels.com and you could create a channel on any, on any subject. And as soon as you created that channel, it would create a seed channel and it would go out and it would pull from a few data sources, such as there was obviously no APIs, so I was just going to scrape Google and various different places and um, kind of create an, embry- an embryo of a channel. And then the idea that is that each channel could turn into a community and people could um, help to build and kind of nurture and grow that channel as essentially curating the web one channel at a time. And I was wondering if that, um, if you'd considered anything like that. And the other thing is, I'd be more than happy to send you that business plan for you to go through and pick any scraps from it that, that may be useful to your business model. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I also wrote a ridiculously long business plan in my first company, by the way. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> never read. I would never um, do that again, yeah. <laughs> but um, so Mahalo and Cosmics are doing that exact strategy today. Yeah. Um, and they're doing a decent job in terms of getting SEO traffic. I don't think they're yielding anyone to use it as their search engine or anything. Um, but I, I do think there's something to that, like a lighter weight, get, get a few links for each query. Um, Wikia Search was doing this as well to a sort of the degree we're talking about. Um, I don't know if they had karma points, but in any case, they had a lot of people using it. Um, and editing queries, but they shut it down. Um, I think they shut it down for other reasons, and there are other execution uh, poorness that they did. But um, so around that, there's probably something here that's good. So I like this idea in general. But it's like it's like picking out the right parts and making it work, you know. You know, and I, I was thinking that you know, let's say you did an experiment and you said, okay, I'm gonna, you know, you pick like you know, a few hundred tech, let's say tech, let's focus on technology topics because there's going to be your early adopters, the whole hacker news world. And you say, okay, we have a, we have a Ruby page or we have a, a MongoDB page or something like that. Right. And what, and so those pages you could experiment on the submitting links or voting some of the links up and down. So you have kind of a ranking for people and you could have like a karma. And like you said, you could have a karma threshold for people trying to, so you can kind of keep people from gaming it. Cause hacker news does a pretty good job of preventing gaming. And, what you might also be able to do is, is just sort of see if that works as an experiment, and you could create a community around those those channels so that you could have people 
so if it comes up on the Ruby page or the Node.js page or something, you could have your you, you could kind of have on the right side and the on the right um, sidebar maybe like who are your sort of top um, experts in the age uh, on that page of top karma on that points and uh, are the most karma points and that gives them more reason to want to. Because uh, there's, there's a link back to maybe their blog or their homepage or something like that. But another thing, I was I was I was reading an article about uh, uh, it was a company called University Tutor, and he the guy talked about how you know he had two different kind of tutors, free tutors and um, and uh, paid tutors. So he had a listing. And first he started as like um, standard and and pro, but then he turned it into um, free versus featured listings, and then it dramatically increased his his profit because once people understood they were featured as and then they would get a bigger uh, conversion rate they were willing to pay so i was thinking it's like if you had kind of like featured um you know featured links almost like paid links but there's some kind of a, a, a way that you could validate who could actually be so you kind of prevent the spamming of it or something with search engines that's always a bad idea because the, the quality of the search engine comes through the fact that it's not it's not gamed <laughs> okay, we'll we'll scratch the last part. Scratch the last part, but at least the first part, the you know showing the experts who get a lot of karma points for curating. I still think that would be an interesting thing, and I could see people because you know it's like I I look at your your homepage, uh, Gabriel, and it's like you have a ton of hacker uh, hacker news points and Reddit points and all that kind of stuff. So clearly, there's some party it, of you that is getting. But a it lot is of- so different to what Gabriel's doing right now. Like you'd have to do huge amounts of work to to turn it into something like that, right, Gabriel? Uh, really? I mean, did you really just to have people? <laughs> that was a question to Gabriel. But yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Okay. All right. Um, well, I've actually done a good piece of it already, so it's 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 most of the way there because I have been experimenting with it. Okay. Yeah, I I would just think what what I'm saying, just is not that it could make individual topics more valuable, but just that it would pull in sort of a social um, engagement. People would become more interested, and they want to get points, and they, you know, you create all that stuff well, around it. I mean, Mahalo, um, sorry, Mahalo, Mahalo kind of proves, uh, Gabriel. Mahalo kind of proves that that you can get that level of people involved and create. You could do the old eighty twenty rule, right? And you could kind of get that number of people involved and get a, a decent amount of queries dealt with. But the the thing is, their execution of it is very um, uh, content rich. It would be cool if something existed like that that was more pithy and more bullet pointy. Like the, to me, the most valuable thing that Moholo have is their ten quick facts. If you like, if you go to any Moholo page, it just says quick points, and it's just like a bullet point list. If, yep. if every page just had that and nothing else, then Moholo would be a really useful system. Yeah, in particular, I, I've been I have them on the list of sources to um, scrape. But so I mean, that's sort of what I get now. The reason why I've been somewhat hesitant is because like how it like interacts with Wikipedia. So like now, if you search for like Ruby or something, you'll get the links from Wikipedia and the description, and those aren't necessarily bad. People are editing those as well, and it's like merging all that together. You know? Yeah. No, that's interesting. Uh, how, so, how many? Um, what's your traffic like now? How much, where are you with that? Um, so, last month we had 1.8 million searches, um, and it'll be that about this month, or it looks like it's on target for that. And, and I'm sorry, how, and how long has DuckDuckGo been live? Um, it's been live two years. That seems pretty good. I mean, considering you've just bootstrapped this whole thing, right? I mean, it's not like you're funneling millions of dollars into advertising. Yeah, in particular too, like um, that's pretty much mostly all direct traffic at this point. Um, 
it's just slowly grown from the beginning. I mean, essentially zero. Well, it looks like looking on compete.com. I mean, I don't know how close compete.com is to your real figures, but compete.com has you pegged at around about a hundred thousand uniques a month. And the uptrend um, seems to have gone. It, that seems to be quite recent within the last few months that it's taken. It's, it's beginning to be a little bit of a hockey stick, right? So that's interesting. You look like you're at an interesting point in your growth right now. Yeah, Compete is interesting. One thing about Compete is that it's just U.S. And okay. a decent amount of our traffic is international. But um, yeah, yeah, definitely it's been growing um, uh, substantially. It's, it seems like the rate has almost been somewhat constant, you know, but like because of the percentages, you get higher absolute numbers. What 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 about the this thing of okay what Jason was talking about, but also taking on the thought of like, you know this you know the kind of the world of Warcraft game strategy like where you feel like you're you're owning more and you're building a bigger piece and you're getting rewards. What mm-hmm. about if somehow you could create some kind of gaming concept where, as people curated more and more searches and got more and more involved, they they their I guess avatar or their their land or their world grew so like. This is the world of DuckDuckGo that you own and that you're responsible for. <laughs> I like that. You're like, yeah, I like that. Like a gra- like a little gra- like a big like sort of a, a bird's eye view of like the world, like this big. It could be uh, your imaginary DuckDuckGo country or something like that, and and then <laughs> following, <conquering> land. <laughs> following through that, you know, that could be quite a, a good way to to bring the viral piece in because then you can do the clever Facebook tactics of when you invite new people, that also helps you grow your your status and your your country, etc. Hmm, that's interesting. One thought I had with related to that that was if you had like a little avatar icon, you know how like on WordPress themes, like at the bottom, there's like a little smiley face sometimes, or like some avatar because it's like made by some guy. Yeah. Um, if there was like an icon, a small icon somewhere on the search result page, and if you like got high enough, you could sort of own that search results page. I don't know yeah. if that would be too like cluttering or something, but I thought that was sort of an interesting concept. Well, that, that's what I was thinking about when I said you had a list of your top moderators or contributors on the right-hand side, and they'd be okay. ranked by the two of the top experts, And I, I, which I think, you know, which obviously is really simple to do, and it's just, you know, whatever. It's just like, well, I see. But Justin, I was going to say one thing following up on your idea. It's like the whole game mechanics concept. It was, I think Fred Wilson talked about how he looks for in all his investments now, like this you know this gaming mechanics feature that they everything should be a game i like that search engine as game i like it i think that'd be cool so um, that's a pretty uh, obviously a pretty big uh, departure of um what dr go does right now all right, well so, we we've we've been uh we've been giving gabriel all our advice why don't we actually ask him some questions instead of telling him what we think <laughs> so um okay Let's see. I had a couple questions. Let me just. Um, oh, uh, one thing I noticed is you had an iPad, iPhone app for for DuckDuckGo. Is that right? It's not just using a web browser, right? Yeah, right. It's a, it's a whole native app. Yep. And how is, has that worked for customer acquisition, engagement, anything? Um, it hasn't worked that great. I thought it might work a lot better than it did because I think it actually is pretty useful and novel. But um, maybe it just needs more tweaks and, you know, like a next version might work better. But mm-hmm. I was bullish about that, um, but it hasn't worked out great that great so far. Did you build it yourself or did you outsource it? I built it in conjunction with another uh, guy in Philly. So do you know, I mean, you, you, would you write it in like Xcode and Coco? Or? 
That he did, thing? yeah. Uh, I so he dealt with all that part, and I dealt with all the API. You know, I, I gave him all the APIs and what to do. Okay, okay. How how much did it cost you to build something like that? Um, zero. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I like that. That's a great price. <laughs> um, so, uh, well, how did you, how did you get him to do it for zero? Does he just have some kind of options, or is he doing it for a favor, or what? Um, rev, or, the original one was just sort of a favor. The second iteration, which came out recently, we were going to do like a revenue split, mm-hmm. um, but it's still you know ongoing. Right. So, who else is working with you on DuckDuckGo right now? Um, besides him, Chris, which is currently not doing anything because it's that's sort of stagnant. Um, it's really just me, and then other some other random people. I, I started open sourcing various things, and there's a few mm-hmm. people who are um, helping, you know, with a few components every now and then. Right. So how much how much of your time is spent writing code and building product versus say, I don't know, working with you know ad stuff, writing blog posts to try and bring attention to you and DuckDuckGo and all that stuff. Um, direct most. All time is on spent on coding. Um, yeah. I used to spend more time doing the ad stuff, but since it wasn't super fruitful and I haven't had any great ideas recently, I haven't been doing that as much. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't been writing a lot of direct DuckDuckGo posts, and I sort of consider my other posts sort of separate. I mean, it does raise my profile a bit, but it doesn't usually send traffic to DuckDuckGo much. Right. So, so your your participation on your your blog writing in Hacker News isn't a big part of why DuckDuckGo is picking up traffic. You don't think? No. Um, I certainly DuckDuckGo posts that do well bring in traffic. So that's definitely helped. And mainly mm-hmm. those are announcing things like privacy things or something. Um, right. But ancillary posts have nothing to do with it. That like say I write a post and gets on top of Hacker News basically brings in no traffic to DuckDuckGo. I think so that helps my angel investing stuff, but doesn't help. Right. So that's a really interesting thing to know because I've been playing around with that idea myself. So, you know, I'm working on a, like, like Justin, you know, said, we're, we both have our like side projects. Justin has a, uh, like a Twitter client thing called Plugio. Um, and he also has a, a, a game called Swarm, which is um, a board game for the iPad. And I have something called uh, App Ignite, which is, you know, it's built, it's what it is, is allows non-developers to be able to build web applications just going through a series of wizards and, you know, clicking on settings and things like that. And, you know, so we talk a lot about, you know, how do you, is is it worth spending a lot of time blogging and and building up that presence? Because it seems like to get a high profile blog, to build up five or 10,000 or more um, Readers, I mean, that takes a lot of work and take like a year or two of just writing, you know, one or two big posts a week. And it almost sounds from what you're saying that that may not be worth the time. It may be better to spend all that time building a better product and then using things like Reddit ads or, or something else. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? I think it is. So my thoughts in getting traction in general are that there's a lot of different ways to get traction and you really have to evaluate them all per business. And so blogging in particular is one way, and I think it works well for some businesses and less for others. Um, so, like, it's worked really well for, say, like, the, like Compete.com and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And for other things, it, it's, it's not worked well at all. Um, and I think it relates to is sort of can you reach an audience that is going to be your customers, and then can you convert them from reading that article into being a customer? Um, right. 
in my case, it's like I have this mass market thing, and I need to get them to switch search engines. The blog post, just a random blog post, is so ancillary to that topic, and I'm trying to reach so many people that I'm not necessarily going to hit the right people who are want to switch search engines at that that time, and I'm not really incentivizing them to do so, so it doesn't really impact it. Right. But if you were like, say, if you were like writing this swarm game or something, and you somehow had a way to write a blog that reached people who install iPad games and, you know, play them and stuff, then it might be good. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Right. Have, have you thought about um, SEOing for, for for people who are searching on things like alternative to Google? Yeah, so that is one way I get a decent amount of SEO traffic now, although the Google Instant thing may have just blown that to pieces. <laughs> why, why would the Google Instant thing blow that to pieces? Because they're... Uh, I, I don't know yet how people are going to change their search habits, but they're automatically um, changing the query. So, right, I was ranked pretty highly for the term search engine on Google. So, if you search search engine and hit enter, uh, DuckDuckGo comes up on the first page. But for instance, now if you type in search engine, Google automatically completes it to search engines. They add an S where I'm not ranked first on, mm. on the first page or anywhere near it. So to the extent that people will just go with what Google automatically completes, um, it's going to change a lot of traffic that people were previously getting. So you're writing a book about traction, right? Yes. And, and I, I noticed on your uh, website you had posted a bunch of, uh, I, I guess they were um, video interviews um, with at least a dozen or more uh, people. So tell us a little bit about the book and uh, how, what got you started on it. So the book, before I get accused for like vaporware or something, <laughs> the book is very. Hey, don't slowly. worry about that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm. <laughs> it's very slowly coming together, right? So um, I'm not sure when it's going to be out, and and DuckDuckGo is taking up so much more of my time that like it might be a long time before it comes out. But I am working on it, and those interviews are real, as you can watch them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but so the genesis was that I started getting angel investing and get more involved in Hacker News. And the comment that I see the most and the thing I see most people struggling with is, okay, I have a site. How do I get users? You know, how do I get customers? Right. How do I get traction? Um, and I just felt that I saw answer, people answering that question and I just felt that it wasn't very comprehensive. I didn't really give tactical ways for people that people could use or they couldn't necessarily see how the advice applied to their business. And so I just feel that there is this need for, to explain this to people. Um, so that's really yeah. the, where it I wish from. it existed. I'd buy it right now if it did. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, that's, again, that's what I did. The traction is one of those, those key miracle functions. Do you, do you ever seen the cartoon where it shows like two mathematicians at a blackboard and he says, well, step one, this, step two, this, and then step three, and then a miracle happens. <laughs> and the other mathematician looks at me, I think you need to be a little more explicit, explicit in step three. Right. The, uh, and, the like modern equivalent is a South Park, you know, underwear gnomes. <laughs> what's that one? I, I don't think I've, I've heard of Oh, you don't know that one? You, you yeah. have, to, have to look up the, click, uh, the clip on this. Um, okay. But if you just search South Park underwear gnomes, you'll get it. But like, it's all these underwear gnomes, and they, they are these gnomes who collect underwear. Uh -huh. And then like, they ask them, why are you collecting underwear? And they have this chalkboard, and it says, step one, collect underwear. 
Step two, question mark, question mark, question mark. Step three, profit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly the same thing, right? So it's, 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 yeah, traction is this sort of unknown thing, and everybody just sort of just says, well, I'll just build it, and then we'll kind of figure it out. And I think it's really really useful that you're you're doing that i've i've listened to a bunch of the interviews or watched them a number of them myself and there's a couple i already have bookmarked because when i was doing research for this interview i was like oh yeah i gotta i gotta watch these two or three for sure um so well i'll just a question about the the book itself because um if you if you got if you hire if you just outsource the transcripts if they if you took the interviews and you paid someone two or three hundred or two hundred dollars or hundred dollars you know to outsource the transcript and then you collated all the transcripts and then you and then you hired an outsourced an editor to go through it it seemed like you'd be pretty close to having a first draft of a book I mean even with the interviews that you have Am so I wrong? that was my original idea for the book to be if you've read like Founders at Work you know. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking. It founded is exactly what the founders of work is, right? To do something like that, there's a, there's another one called like Entrepreneur Journeys for, from this uh, Forbes writer, which is pretty good. So, uh-huh. so I thought about doing that um, and, and digging in sort of what you're doing in these podcasts of like the miracle function stuff. But then when I got into it, I, I was like, you know, there's a lot of these great podcasts. There's a lot of these books already. And even though I am trying to really dig into the miracle function stuff, I still don't feel that it's giving the tactical advice that I set out to do. Right. So mm-hmm. I've sort of changed course on that. And I think more of the book now, what I want to do is take all these traction verticals. So like one will be blogging, one will be SEO, one will be, you know, search engine marketing um, and pull out from interviews and do a series of more interviews with experts on that very specific traction topic right. and, um, and make a chapter on each vertical. Not really, just, distill it, really distill it down to the essence. Yeah, and so I recently did a post, um, which is really the first one in that vein, with Sean Murphy. I don't know if you had a chance to read it or anything. Yeah, it's sitting on my nightstand. I'm, so I'm going to read it. It's really <laughs> so, long because yeah. it's, it's long in the sense where it could start to turn into a chapter of a book. Um, right. But that is about this very specific thing. Is you have a B2B business. How do you, get, how do you go about getting your first you know, six customers? Um, mm-hmm. And it's you know a really lengthy all sorts of tactics and how to do that and so that, that's where really where I'm headed. So it, it became that's why it's become into a much longer term project because initially I was like oh I can do these interviews pretty quickly do the transcript kick out this book but then I, I just think the quality is not really where I want it to be. Well, you know what? Here's uh, just as a, a counterpoint to that is it could almost be like your minimum viable product. You come out with you know traction interviews with experts in various verticals or something like that. Be kind of something some type of sub title to it and that's your first book and then you're, you come out with a follow-up book which is like you know traction distilled or in deep insight into you know the verticals or something like that so it's like you know following along with that whole mvp you know uh, meme and that everyone's so big on right now on the web is like yeah you get an early version of your book a first version of your book out the first book anyway and you could end up having two books but um that's, no, that's a good point. Idea. I mean, I also, I also like the idea of digital ebooks, um, yeah, because they're basically all profit, and so um, I could probably do the transcripts, put out an ebook, and cover my costs on the transcripts at least. Yeah, that and could be like your introduction, introductory. I guess you could put it as a loss leader almost. Exactly, or at least yeah, or at least just a break even for the transcript leader or something. 
because the transcript wouldn't be that expensive. And we talked to, um, so uh, we talked to Rob Walling, and I think I don't think he it costs a whole lot for transcripts. I think he's 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 big on outsourcing to assistants of various types, and uh, it does it doesn't sound to me like it would be that expensive. I mean, and I don't know how much it would cost, you know, using Elance or the web to find like, an editor who could go through and look at the transcripts and kind of clean them up for you, but. Uh, just, uh, just very quickly, um, just about your angel stuff, because I know that you are an angel investor, and just, just wondering how many projects um, you've invested in vaguely, and whether any of those have come to any kind of fruition, and, and what's what's your status with that that side of things. So, I mean, I I recently started doing it, actually about a year ago at this point. I've invested in four startups, two which I led the rounds of, and then I formally advising two more, and then informally advising a bunch more and so i want to know the founders as much as possible for investing so that informal to formal to investment could be a a process you know like a pipeline yeah um but so that's sort of the state of it okay um you know uh we talked to jessica ma uh, last week uh about uh, she's the ceo of indonero and uh I mentioned her that we were going to be interviewing you, and I, I actually had forgotten to ask her a few questions about her customer uh, development. We spent all, almost the whole time talking about her Y Combinator experience, and so I talked to her a little bit on Saturday, I think it was Sunday, um, and she said to make sure to ask you because you you were giving her some advice and that there was quite a long thread between you and I think Roy Evans about um, customer development for Indonero. Is that right? Uh, Roy Rodstein, yeah. Roy Rodstein, um, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, she, um, Andrew Warner, um, I think, you know, was interested in that and invested in it early on. He might have been the first one or something. And Yeah, he, she said Granger was the first one to ask her to, to want to invest, yeah. And he had, he knew I was doing the traction stuff, and so he had introduced us. And then I told her to write the whole Hacker Angels list, which Roy is part, um, so we could get a whole thread going. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, we started talking about um, you know wh- what she had done. She'd already done a lot of you know she had gotten traction really from the get go. So her question was more like you probably dug into it a little bit, but like okay, I have all these people now. What can I do with them? You know, how do I get to the next level? Um, and so we had this thread with her, but we didn't. She just closed this huge round, but we didn't invest in it. Um, Right, yeah. That's she said that you know it's kind of interesting because I I took some notes on on our discussion um, yesterday and she said that um, you know that they had you know they initially just had like two hundred I think back in December when we first interviewed her she, they had like two hundred customers most were paying and, she, and I asked her how she got those and they, most of them were just friends and or friends of friends kind of thing they were and then the I guess about half of them were so about a hundred were and then about half of them came from her blog people who had been reading her uh, personal blog. And I guess when the big jump happened was she got a write-up from um, – she got write-ups, I guess, from uh, Mashable, TechCrunch, ReadWriteWeb, VentureBeat, and GigaOM. Yep. And I was like, well, okay, how, you know, how the hell does that happen, right? I mean, because they, all these places get pitched, you know, maybe 100 or more pitches a day probably. I mean, how did you get the write-up? And she said that Paul Graham helped her just craft like a two-paragraph email. And and it worked. Like she got of the, she. I guess they emailed like twelve pretty large blogs. So they didn't bother. She said she didn't bother. You know, emailing a bunch of smaller blogs. She just focused on the big 
you know, about 12 of the big ones. And she got covered on five of the 12. And only two of them, Mashable and TechCrunch, was there any sort of warm intro? I guess one of her investors knew Mark Arrington, and then I think Mashable, like she knew the reporter or something like that. But the other ones actually covered it. And, you know, and then she went from there. She went immediately to, to like, somewhere between, uh, she got up to 2,000 users. And, uh, and and some percentage of them were, were actually paying because she changed from a, to a freemium model. And then another 1.5 to 2,000 over the next six weeks came organically as a result of that, of the initial 2,000. So what are your thoughts on on that kind of strategy? It's like, look, you know, you I mean, her strategy seemed to be mostly she got some through blogging and friends and friends, which everyone will talk tell you to do. And then she just, you know, tried to craft a good email and and, um, and was able to get traction. By that. I mean, do you think there was luck or do you think it was just because she was a YC company and really that was what the difference was? Or what do you think? Um, I generally think that's a great strategy because it, it only takes a few minutes and it can't hurt, right? <laughs> right, um, right. If you don't get it, you can just back off. Um, I think in her case, like, she had a... She, 200 paying customers is actually not small, in my opinion. Unbelievable. You know? Yeah. Right. So, like, I think that is, you have people like traction. I like to say traction trumps everything. And so I think that was a large part of her getting, I'm sure the Y Combinator stuff helped, but I don't think they, she would have gotten such a big hit like that if she didn't have already some traction. Mm-hmm. So I think it was important for her, and I would advise, to go out and actually try to get those customers, some customers ahead of time, you know? Um, the other reason why you want to do that, and it was good for her, is like, if they put it out there and her site sucked, really, like, she wouldn't have actually converted any and the organic stuff wouldn't happen either, you know? Like, the product had to be good enough for for it to spread. Right, right. Yeah, so I guess the, you know, you, to go out and, 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 you know, it's friends and friends of friends and blogging or whatever you can do to get that first, get get a solid core set of paying users. I mean, what would you say would be instant, a reasonable amount? 50, 100? What would you say would be not? Uh, yeah, I think 50 and 100 is a reasonable amount, especially when they're paying a decent amount, like on her product. And so when she came to us with that amount, like what we initially told her was she didn't really know like what exactly those people were using it for or why they liked it at that point. And so like our advice was, okay, you really need to get these people on the phone, you know, and go deeper into customer development with them to see what are what are they using on it what are uh what ways can you improve etc what ways can you make it more viral how can you maybe you can have an invite kind of dropbox type of thing i don't know what you did thereafter if it just took off yeah on its own. the other thing is yeah i actually actually justin i have some information on that so she said that she has been to the office of a few dozen customers so she actually when she found out they were in the bay area she would actually drive there and spend a significant amount of time just sitting with them talking about the product watching how they use it asking you know asking them what they wanted and what their problems were and then she said she also spent and at least in between a half hour to two hours on the phone with somewhere between 100 and 200 customers. Ah, perfect. So she took that advice. <laughs> so she really went and did it, right? I mean, which, you know, you hear Steve Blank, I think, is, is famous for this advice of get out of the office, go talk to customers. I mean, she was not fearful to go out and, you know, I'm going to go, you know, literally driving across and sitting down in somebody's office. I mean, it's, it might seem kind of foreign to, to a lot of uh, tech people who are just used to being kind of in their comfortable little space writing code and sending emails. Same as um, central desktop. Well, one last thing. One last thing I wanted to say about the Jessica thing, which I thought was interesting, is she said that. Well, two things. One is she said she didn't use any AdWords 
which I thought was interesting. She hasn't tried to use that at all, which sounds like that's just sort of like another bullet in her, uh, you know, that she can still use fire at some point. Cause obviously that can work. And, uh, it seems to me there's no reason why a company like Indo Nero, you know, uh, couldn't AdWords wouldn't work for that, and the other thing she said was that she she th- I said well what was your biggest mistake, and uh, she said really it was trying to raise money before they ha- she had any traction she said, that was a complete waste of time. Um, that it, you know there's always a few examples of people who are able to do that, but I, I'd be curious what your thoughts are on that as an angel investor. I mean people come to you and they don't have any traction. Is it just kind of like why are you talking to me at this point? Yeah, absolutely. I mean I. Uh, I just referenced that other post I, I wrote called Traction Trumps Everything. Um, and even if you can raise money before traction, you're just going to get it done so much more quickly and so much better terms if you have some. I mean, so I would definitely do that. And the thing I like to point out is like, it, it's not that much. Like, we're talking 50 to 100 customers, you know? That's, that's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that much, but it actually proves a lot from the angel perspective, which is that you you were able to deliver a product to a paying customer. You know, that just process, mm-hmm. if we can sit there and say, okay, I think I can see how you might repeat that process, um, then it makes sense to invest money in that process, you know? But before mm-hmm. you get there, there's so much risk in that, you know, technical risk, product risk, you know, team risk that you can actually, won't actually ever get to a point of one paying customer. Well, well, because once you, get the, once you get there, you're, you're eliminating several of those functions, yeah, several of those risks off the table, right? Because you, they've demonstrated right. that people want it. They've demonstrated that they can execute to the point where it's important where people are actually paying. They can demonstrate to some point that the technology actually works, otherwise people wouldn't be using it. So the I think that's the sweet spot right there. I mean, so just to be honest, too, I know there, I know plenty of angel investors who who invest before that too, but right. it's just it's not me. Are there, is there any other things that we haven't covered that you think yeah, founders should know? I mean, about traction, about starting a company. What what specifically would you think would be good for people to think about that they may not be thinking about? Um, the the biggest things to me are write out your assumptions and you know, validate them as quickly and cheaply as possible. And then higher level than that, I wrote up this post about powder keg ideas. And I think that a lot of entrepreneurs are of a belief, and it's really more of a fantasy that their idea is a powder keg idea, that mm-hmm. it's just going to, they're going to spark it and it's going to blow up and they're going to have a million users overnight. And that is just hardly, it happens, which is why people have it in their minds, but it's very, very rare. And the vast majority of ideas are what I would call movement ideas, where you have to sit around and build a movement around your company. And that takes a lot of time and hard work. And um, I think a lot of people give up when they get to a point and realize that they don't have a powder keg idea. But if you come in with the right expectation, maybe you won't give up. Right. We talk about, we, we've talked a little bit about that as the five-year plan. Like, you just have to commit to five years. Like, this is going to be, a, you know, before it's, say, a, a significantly profitable business. If you go in with that expectation, then you're okay because, you know, if it, if, it, if it takes two or three years, great. But, you know, at least you're not, like, throwing in the towel if after a year and a half of hard work, you're not really making a whole lot of money. I mean, I don't know if five years is the right number, but at least for my startup, that's what I told myself. Sorry, right. I got to find an idea that's interesting enough, potentially profitable enough um, that I can work on it for five years and not look back and go, ah, why did I spend time? That was such a stupid, uninteresting. I think five years is a great number, actually. Yeah. And I guess expectations, that's a big part of life, right? You know, if you get expectations are too high, um, it kind of ruins things. You know, you can go and see a good movie, but if, every, if, if several of your friends went and 
had already told you it was the best movie they've ever seen, then it can kind of ruin the movie for you. (laughs) (laughs) So, is that your Doc Doc Go plan? Something like a five-year strategy? Yeah, I mean, I for that I even potentially more long-term. It's just that I set out not thinking it was going to be huge overnight, and of course it wasn't. But I mean, I'm in probably three years now, and it's you know starting to take off a little more. But um, I'm not super excited or super underwhelmed because that's sort of how I thought it might go, you know? Yeah. Right. Oh, like, you know, I guess like one more question. I, I just actually, so, you know, obviously, you know, this is pretty much just all you and how do you personally balance sort of the business and coding side? I mean, do you have fun doing the business side as much as you do the, you know, writing code and building product? I mean, how do you sort of mentally psychologically balance those tasks? Yeah, I have, I mean, maybe it's just me. I don't know, but I have. I am interested in both sides, and I. I think that the best ideas. Co- the reason why I like the single founder approach, and even if you have two founders, you have them do everything mm-hmm. as much as possible, is because I think the best ideas come from merging the two, from thinking about them sort of simultaneously. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely like that. I think it's well. I you know I'm I'm really impressed with what you've done with uh, DuckDuckGo so far. I think it's really cool. I also think it's ballsy, which I like. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> and it's not chasing a market everybody else is doing. You're like, all right, well, I'm going to go after the biggest, most powerful, scariest company in the world, and I'm going to go after Achilles Hill. I mean, that's that's uh, really an interesting story, and I think it actually can make for a good story for the mainstream press at some point if you pick up a little more traction. Yeah, uh, simply from that angle. So I'm really excited uh, to see how DuckDuckGo goes, and I'm going to start using it because I think it's it's cool now that I've looked at it a little more closely. So, well, Gabriel, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to come on the show and spending such a long period of time for us. I work almost two hours in, so we really appreciate you taking this much time with us. Thank you very much, Gabriel. It's been really great. Uh, thank you very much for having me. All right, great. All right, well, that's a wrap. We're out. 